And if the rest of you would turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, um, we're picking up now in our fifth, fifth week in the book of Daniel as we study the faithfulness of God in uncertain times. And as you're making your way to that chapter, uh, just, just by way of context, as we turn there and we, we dive into this story, it may seem like we've jumped several gears um, jumping forward here because we go from four chapters on Nebuchadnezzar, immediately the first words in chapter 5 are King Belshazzar. And what we don't know from the text, but what we know from uh, the study of history, is that at least 23 years of history have passed between the time of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that great king, died in 562 B.C., and his death wasn't even at the end of uh, chapter 4. So it may have been even more than 23 years between these two chapters. And Belshazzar, the king we're going to hear about today, he rose to power in 553 B.C., and this chapter takes place around 539 B.C., the last year of his reign, and indeed the last year of the Babylonian Empire. <clears throat> and so we can tell that Daniel's main point in writing this book, and God's point in revealing these things to us, is not to give us a play-by-play -play account of the history of the Babylonian Empire, but it's rather to teach us about his faithfulness and about his ability to humble the arrogant and the proud. And with Nebuchadnezzar, we saw the patience of God on display. We saw how after blow by blow, he whittled down that great king and brought him before God in humble worship uh, to the point at which the last verse in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's final statement, is going to echo like a thunderclap over everything we read about Belshazzar. And so uh, just to remind you, Bel or Nebuchadnezzar's last thing that he said was that God is, is great and he honored God. And then he said that this God is able to humble those who walk in pride. And we've seen then that God is patient, and often he humbles the proud unto redemption. And yet we're also going to see that, yes, God is patient, but he is not a pushover, and that he is both patient and just. And with Belshazzar, we're going to see that God will, will humble those who arrogantly cling to their faith and their trust in empty idols. And that, that uh, humbling will be unto judgment and condemnation. So let's turn now then to the text. We're going to start with the first four verses. So hear the word of the Lord for us, his people. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. <clears throat> so again, we dive right into the very last year of Belshazzar's 14-year reign. We jump right in, and Daniel points us to this party that Belshazzar is throwing for himself. And uh, real quick, just another note we ought to make up front is that Daniel refers to Nebuchadnezzar uh, as Belshazzar's father. And that word father, especially in, in Semitic languages, uh, could often mean father or grandfather or great-grandfather. And so um, as, as biblical uh, historians have, have studied uh, the Babylonian history, they've realized that uh, Belshazzar is probably a king, uh, King Nabonidus' son. And so when Daniel is calling Nebuchadnezzar uh, Belshazzar's father, it's not that he's making a mistake. It's not that the Bible is somehow wrong. What he's doing is he's drawing these two kings into comparison because Nebuchadnezzar is still Belshazzar's predecessor on the throne. They are related in that way, and indeed they may be related in some sort of royal family as well. 
But King Nabonidus and Belshazzar, they were ruling together at this time in Babylon. There were two kings due to some political and religious strife. They saw fit to have two of them uh, reigning. And yet, it's also interesting because as some commentators point out, it may be that Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father in order to draw these two kings into comparison and contrasting relationship. That we could see how they're similar and how they're different and how God's ways and actions towards them are similar and different. And right up front, there's a huge difference between all of the accomplishments of Nebuchadnezzar and the meager accomplishments of Belshazzar. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar was truly a man of the empire. He was a man who was mighty on the battlefield, who wielded great political power, and who had architectural genius just sweeping throughout his empire. He built beautiful things and wonders of the world. And yet Belshazzar, even though he reigned for 14 years, all we get to know about him is that he's a party animal and that he throws a party for his own glory. And even the vessels from the temple that he uses as a centerpiece of this party, it's noted that they weren't brought by Belshazzar from Israel, but by Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's not the guy who put the lion in the cage. He's just the fool who pokes it and gets bitten. He didn't have anything to do with bringing Israel into exile, and yet he's going to make a mockery of Israel's God. And it's important then that we understand why everything Belshazzar does at this party is so sinful. Because at first you might be like, so did he drink out of God's favorite cup? Like, is he messing with Papa Bear's porridge here? Why is this such a big deal? And it's not that this is some sort of Indiana Jones-esque, like, magical properties about these vessels. The sin is in the statement that he's making about himself and about God. Because in taking these vessels and in using them in a party where he's got a thousand set of eyes on him, and using them for his glory and his celebration and his pleasure, he is saying, I am God, and this God is puny, and his people are mine, and I have thrown him down. And so, for comparison, it would be like watching your favorite college football team just get pounded uh, yesterday. Maybe that happened for some of you. It happens every week, I guess, to some teams. And then before you know it, the Ryan, that wasn't a slight against any team in particular. I, I stay out of, I, I'm a northerner, I stay NFL, I stay out of college football. I'm trying. Um, but this would, be like, this would be like having then the rival team just have a whole pack of their fans barge into your living room, take over your TV, raid your fridge, and fire up your grill to throw an after party to celebrate their victory. And the fact that they're doing it in your house using your stuff is just rubbing salt in the wound. They're making sure you know that they have won and that you've been defeated and you're going to stay that way. And so Belshazzar is saying, I can take your stuff, God, because I am God. My hand is mightier than yours. You can't do anything. I've defeated you. And then to add further insult to injury, Belshazzar then praises his own idols. He takes God's stuff and then turns it into a worship service of himself and of his own idols of gold and silver and of bronze and wood and stone. And this is important for us to notice how his arrogance and his idolatry are intricately connected. Because this is so often how sin works. <clears throat> we boast of what we worship and we worship what we're proud of. And as we've said before here, that's dangerous because our worship is what transforms us most, because we worship what we love, we worship what we're proud of. And we know this to be true if you're a student at any level and you find your identity and your grades, before long when you look in the mirror you are a 3-9 and not that 4-0 you so desperately crave. You're measured by your SAT scores, you're measured by your results in the AP, you're measured by your acceptance letters, whether it's to college or grad school. If you boast in your athleticism, then you are simply, in your own eyes, you become just a record of your wins and losses and your past performances. If you boast in your career, you are only as valuable to yourself as your resume is impressive. And so as you boast in these things, you are reduced to them, and the image of God in you, you turn your eyes from. 
even though it was still there. And so for us, as we start to work our way into this passage, it's really important that we ask, what do we boast in? What do we find our meaning in when the times are good? And where do we turn and place our trust when the times are bad? Because whatever we worship, it's going to dictate the image into which we are becoming. And so as we celebrate the Lord's faithfulness to us, his people, this Sabbath day, if we find, as we ask this question, that we have a worship disorder, we ought to take this day as gift, to do the great commerce of the soul, and to repent and to turn to the God into whose image we are being fashioned. We return from these empty idols who strip us bare and empty us of life. Because for Belshazzar, we're going to see that you don't often have as much time as you think because you're not in control, although we often like to think we are. So let's turn back to the text and pick up in verse 5. <clears throat> Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So again, God gives Belshazzar zero chance to relish in his pompous self-worship here, and immediately this hand just appears out of nowhere and begins to write this message on the plaster of his throne room. And we know uh, from various archaeological studies, the plaster in a king's throne room was basically where he, it's like a Facebook page, it's where he would put all of his greatest accomplishments for all of the world to see. And he wasn't very humble. There was no like hashtag blessed. I'm going to try to dress this up in some sort of like self-humility. They just put it out there for the world to see so that when you entered their presence, you knew who you were dealing with. And you felt small and they felt big. And so for God to send this hand, that just, just a hand by itself, which is bizarre to us. We don't know whose hand it was. Was it angels? That's not really important though. Because in verse 24, Daniel assures us this was sent from the Lord and that's what matters. And for that hand to write on that spot where his accomplishments would have been proclaimed to the world is to show already that your boasting is empty and that you don't have a foot to stand on before the Lord. And so the real question for us and for Belshazzar is, how is he going to respond to this? And at the very least, his response is one of just sheer emotional terror. Because the text just talks about how his color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. He's just been reduced to a state of abject fear. And it's interesting because some commentators even pointed out, I was shocked when I read this, but they pointed out that that phrase, that his limbs gave way, may have actually meant uh, in Aramaic that he lost total control of his bodily functions. And so you think about that. Here's a guy who had a thousand sets of his Lord's eyes on him as he's drinking wine and boasting in his prowess of the bottle. And suddenly he's reduced by a floating hand to a state of infantile humiliation. And all the eyes are still on him. And yet, like us, when we are uh, shown to be foolish and our, our bubble is burst in front of people, he doubles down on his pride. And he tries to save face, and that's why he cries out loudly and he calls for the wise men to be brought in, because he's going to try to maintain control of the situation, which is the height of arrogance. So he calls for them to come in, and this offer he makes, when he offers them robes of purple and a golden chain, that wasn't just like really nice clothes, that was a sign of royal authority. 
and in raising them up to the third in command in the kingdom was as high as you could get because if Nabonidus' father and he, Belshazzar, were the first and second, then for you to be made the third would be as high as you could rise in the political ranks. And in offering this, he's not just being gracious and giving a really nice gift. He's also showing, I'm still the one who can lift up and who can bring down because I'm in control. Even though this is happening, I'm really frightened. I'm not going to let go. I'm going to double down on my pride. And yet, the Babylonian wise men, as they have throughout the entire book of Daniel, they're totally incapable of figuring out what the Lord has revealed to these kings. And so Belshazzar remains frightened. And his color changes again, and his lords are simply perplexed. And for our part, it's worth asking ourselves again, has the Lord ever shocked you out of your sin? Has he written on the wall of your life, so to speak, and shown you where something that you have uh, thought was okay, and instead you've been boasting in it, you've made it your idol, where there's some unrepented sin that you've brushed aside and you've presumed upon his mercy, when he shocks you like that and shakes you at your core, how have you then responded? Because Belshazzar's example demonstrates for us that just because we feel very strongly emotionally uh, considered towards our sin, that's not the same thing as repentance. And that's good news because for some, some of us who are less emotional and more rational, we sometimes worry, like, have I really repented? Because I don't feel like I have yet. And what Belshazzar is teaching us here, and what we see here, is that repentance is not a matter of the emotion. It's not even totally a matter of what you say. It's a matter of which way, as we said before, you run when the Lord convicts you of your sin. You run back to yourself, back to your idols. Do you try to reassemble Humpty Dumpty and put your pride back together and your reputation? Or do you run quickly and boldly to the throne of grace that has been made open for you in Christ? Do you run back to the Father who so loves you so much that he would shake you out of your sin because he's trying to redeem you out of it and build you up in his own image. And with Belshazzar, though, we see that he will not run back to the throne of God. He will not, like Nebuchadnezzar, be humbled unto redemption, but instead he's going to double down again and again and again. And that's going to be intensified as Daniel enters the scene. And so as we turn to verse 10, we're going to see now how Daniel is brought forward because thus far he's been absent and he's been quiet and, and neglected in the story, but he's coming. So let's pick up again in verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, for they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
And so the queen is the only person at this point in all of Babylon who still has her head on straight. I mean, we've maintained a level head at this point. Uh, it's, it's believed uh, by, by most commentators that she's probably the queen mother uh, and not the actual wife of Belshazzar because remember in the first verses of the chapter, we read that his wives and his concubines were already in the party. And so this, this queen, the queen mother, has to come into the banqueting hall. She's heard the commotion. She comes in and she says to Belshazzar, she says, look, there's a guy in the kingdom, Daniel, who Nebuchadnezzar, who you're so proud of to call on your royal lineage, he recognized what the Lord had done in this Daniel's life. And this Daniel was able to solve such riddles and such problems. We don't know for sure whether or not uh, Belshazzar had heard of Daniel. We don't know if he's just ignoring him because he's heard of what happens when Daniel comes on the scene to your pride as king. But either way, he consents. He says, all right, bring him in. And notice, though, how he addresses Daniel. Because this is snarkiness and condescension at its best. He says, you are that Daniel. Already sort of putting a little dehumanizing distancing on Daniel. And then he says, whom my father, not whom my father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made chief of the magicians, but whom my father brought into exile from Judah. And so he's putting Daniel under his, the heel of his boot, and he's stepping down and he's saying, you are small. Don't forget who you are. You are worthless. Even though I can't dispute that you have all these great gifts from God and you have all this wisdom, you are small, and I'm, in, I'm the king, and I'm going to make my offer. I'm doubling down on it, and you have to play by my rules. But if we peek ahead real quick to Daniel's response, it's really interesting. Uh, let me read verse 17 for us real quick. He says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, that's a pretty brazen and bold response because you have to remember who he is talking to. Yes, Belshazzar is maybe not half the king as Nebuchadnezzar, but he's still the king with a jerk of his thumb. He can have Daniel's head lopped off. And so for Daniel to skip all of the courtly manners and say this and dismiss his gifts is a great act of boldness. And there's part of us that might want to go rah, rah, shish, kambah, look at him, stick his finger in the eye of the world put them in their place. But that would be to misinterpret what, we, what he is doing. He's not fighting arrogance with more arrogance. Instead, he's actually acting in a, in a very humbling and, and humbled way because he's seeing reality as it really is underneath the sovereignty of God. He's able to see who Belshazzar is as a king of man, and he's able to see that his prizes and his praises, prizes and praises of the world are worthless, and that the promises and faithfulness of God are all that really matters. We have to recognize, too, that this would have been a very tempting offer for Daniel because notice he's not being bribed to tell a lie. All he's got to do is say the message that God has revealed, which he's going to do anyways. And so he could have rationalized this. He could have said, I could do a great lot of good for my people who are in exile. If I'm third in command, I could change the laws. We could have more religious liberty. We could have schools that would teach things we actually like. I could do a lot, but he won't do it because he's not going to let Belshazzar remain in his arrogance and think he's still in control. He's not going to play by his terms. So it's critical for us to be praying that we would have such humility as well as we look out on the world and that we would look and ask ourselves, do we care more about what the world can offer us or about what God in Christ is offering the world? Because especially in this election cycle, this is important for us to remember because November is coming. And for some of us, that is, that is a, a scary and anxious thing. And as we ask that question, do we care more about what the world can give us or what God is giving, has given us in Christ in the gospel, 
if the election is causing such turmoil in us, then we've already, in essence, answered the question. We so often care more about what a politician plays lip service to Christianity can give us safety and security than the freedom and security we have in God's promises to us in Christ. And so it's almost worth asking ourselves with this crazy election that's just weird, and maybe I think it's weird because I'm young and it's like only the second time I can vote, but it does seem strange. Um, as this happens, and we, we almost panic and feel like, man, I don't know who to vote for. The third party guys don't seem any good. You've got a clown, you've got a criminal, depending on how you view them. It's just, I don't know what to do. As we think about that, if that induces in us fear, what the Lord is doing is actually extremely gracious because he's showing us the American household gods of democracy and the Constitution and the politics of this world are not enough to give us what we want. That, in fact, the only kingdom that matters is not America, it wasn't Babylon, it wasn't Rome, and it's not any kingdom that's coming except the kingdom of which we are already part of in Christ, and that is the kingdom of God. And so even if it hurts in the moment, it is his grace to us to show us where we are looking more to the world and its empty idols and its empty promises, praises, and prizes so that we can be turned back to the faithfulness of our God, which does not go away no matter who's in the Oval Office. Because as we're going to see now as we come to the biggest section of the text, Belshazzar's kingdom falls like that. It goes out and the Lord extinguishes it without hardly having to lift a finger. So it's great graciousness on his part to us that we are part of the only kingdom that will last. But for now, let us turn back to the text then and see what happens to this, this great ruler of man and his earthly kingdom. Picking up in verse 18, Daniel continues and says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so at last, it's revealed to us what the hand so mysteriously had written on the wall. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. These were Aramaic words. They were units of measurement. And Daniel interprets them uh, to mean that they were God's 
message and, and proclamation of judgment against Belshazzar and his arrogance and his empty idols. Mene, his days and his days of his kingdom had been numbered and they were now at an end. Tekel, that he'd been weighed, that he'd been judged before the Lord and his arrogance and his idols are shown to be empty and worthless. And Parsim, or Perez, that he and his kingdom will be divided and handed over to the Medes and the Persians. You may be wondering, like, where on earth do these Medes and Par- Persians come from? Um, and actually, and just to add to our understanding of Belshazzar's great arrogance, his city, ba- Babylon, had been under siege by these guys for a long time now. And so the fact that he threw a party while he's under siege just shows how great his arrogance was and how great his false confidence was in his walls and in his food supply and in the ingenuity of his architects because they had figured out actually a way to have part of the Euphrates River flow through some gates in the walls so they'd have an unending supply of water. So it was about as siege-proof as you could get, or so you thought. Um, but then in a, in a great twist of fate, like the exhaust port and the Death Star, their ingenuity was their downfall. Because uh, I can't resist the Star Wars reference. I'm a nerd. I'm sorry. Um, I told myself I wouldn't do it, and I did anyway. Um, but um, So they, uh, they divert the uh, Euphrates River, actually. And that lowers the level of water going into the gates. So then the Medes and the Persians storm through that space and sack the city. And so if Belshazzar had spent less time partying and more time being a good king and keeping up with his troops than watching his enemies, they may have seen that coming. But as it is in the sovereignty of of the Lord, this military movement was successful and he struck down very swiftly and very suddenly. You might ask too, though, well, wait a minute. So I thought we said Daniel was humble and then he saw through Belshazzar's empty offer and prizes and praises. So why does he let Belshazzar give him this stuff? And the answer is simply because he knows what's coming. He knows that this isn't going to amount to anything. Him being made third in command in a kingdom that falls that night is, is nothing. It's worthless. And the gold and the purple, they don't matter anymore because Belshazzar is no longer at a position where he can make any such offer because he was struck down. You may also be wondering, especially if you've been with us as we've worked our way through the book of Daniel, why was God so swift in judgment towards Belshazzar, whereas he took great strides and was very patient with Nebuchadnezzar in redeeming him. In both cases, he's humbling the proud, but for one, it was unto redemption, and one, it was unto judgment. So what's, what's going on here? We need to remember the turning point in Daniel's message to Belshazzar, because Belshazzar was not some sort of innocent, naive little king. Daniel points out that you, Belshazzar, you knew everything that the Lord had done to Nebuchadnezzar. And it would have been impossible for him to have not known. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the king. And for the king to be struck down and made to eat grass like an ox, only to then be lifted up and to praise the God of the people he himself brought into exile, that's not something that you can miss. For him to turn around and to give praise to this God would have been something that everyone would have known about, including Belshazzar. There's no way you could have forgotten that. Yet instead of being humbled like Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar lifts himself up against this God. He thumbs his nose at him and instead is thumped down in turn. That's really important for us to understand because what it teaches us is that knowledge cannot save a man or a woman by itself. You can know so many beautiful truths about the Bible. You can know the gospel. You can tell it even well communicate it, know the catechism, and yet not be changed, and yet not repent, and not be moved to worship the Lord our God. 
And you think about it, and so often the world acts as though all we have is a knowledge problem. We think with a little more education, we could reduce the crime rate. With a little more education, it'd be impossible for you to vote for that guy. With a little more education, all our problems would go away. And yet there's not even, we can't change our dietary habits. No matter how many bad facts they tell us about the Big Mac, the Twinkie, or a bottle of Coke, we still eat and drink those things. So why do we think that knowledge can change the deepest problem we have, which is a stony, sinful, deadened heart? So for us, as we go about the work of the church, the one mission of making disciples, this is extremely important because it defines how we go about doing that. It reminds us, and especially in the Reformed tradition, we need to know this, that it is word and spirit. That it is the great gift of the word of God, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through his people that changes hearts. And that's great for us because it frees us to be bold in our witness. We don't have to be little curators of the truth who spend great hours trying to figure out how to prepackage it so that it'll be irresistible to people. What's irresistible is the Spirit of God, not our words. And it gives us then the freedom to be bold and to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to go out. Because God, as we can see here, he can take care of himself when someone makes a mockery. We don't have to waste time in the comment section on YouTube or the blogs. We need to be out in the world in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming the Word of God. And yet, we shouldn't just think about the method of our mission. We should also think about our own hearts. How have you responded to your knowledge of the gospel? How do you continue to respond to it? Has it moved you, and does it still move you, the humble worship of our great God? Because even if the Spirit has already humbled you, by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, you are a child of God. You are a redeemed sinner becoming saint through the process of sanctification. If that has already happened, has hearing the gospel become old news to you instead of the great and good news it is every day? Do you worship week in and week out? Do you find it hard to be here? And if so, why? Where is the worship disorder? Take time today, this gift, this Sabbath day, to be still and to know that the Lord is good and is our God, to do the commerce of the soul, that you may remember your first love, which is our response to the great love of our Father shown to us. And if you've never been moved by the gospel, and you're just tucking that knowledge away, you must realize your peril. Maybe you've been coming to church off and on your whole life. Maybe you've been raised in a Christian home, and you're in your teenage years, and you think, I know this, I've got all the answers, I can go to youth group, and I can answer all your questions, Matt. I can do that, you know, I'll give you a good answer. But in your heart, you know that you are refusing to move to worship by it. You say, I don't need to worry about that now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it off till I get done high school, till I get done college, till I get married, till I retire, until it's too late, Belshazzar shows us. Because to do that, it's not just harmless procrastination like you're waiting to the last night to study for an exam or write your paper. No, it is arrogant presumption on the mercy of God. It is arrogant because it is assuming that we are the ones who get to dictate the terms. Because notice, Belshazzar never changes his response. He says from the beginning, I'll clothe you with purple, I'll give you a chain of gold, and I'll make you third in command. Then Daniel comes and he makes the same offer. And then Daniel tells him what is going to happen, and he still follows through on his offer because he would not let go of control. He would not let go of the reins. And so it is arrogant and it's presumptuous for us to assume that we are the ones who call the shots. As we think then about applying this text, that really is the main message for us, that it is not we who are in control. And so often when we think that the Lord is gracious to us and he humbles us, if you are overcommitted, as I so often am, Sometimes the Lord will just grab you by the scruff of your neck and every which way he's going to pound on you and things won't go right. There'll be criticism here. Something will go wrong. 
and he reminds you, don't you see that your overcommitment is just squeezing out any time for you to be with me, the one you actually need? And it's arrogant for you to think you can do all these things without me? So as he, as he shocks us out of our sin, let us come to him and delight in the fact that he calls the shots and he knows when we need to be shaken and he knows when we need to be comforted that it is all gracious for those who are in Christ. And if you object still and you say, well, it's still not fair that he'd be patient with Nebuchadnezzar and just only with, with, uh, with Belshazzar. Remember, Belshazzar had 14 years and he knew all of this. There was plenty of time for him. And again, so often what we want to do is in our arrogance, we want to cram God into a box and we say, he's all patient, which just makes him a pushover, or he's all just, which just makes him an executioner, and which really just puts him under our control so that we can predict it and still call the shots. But instead, he is patient and he is just in his work of redemption. And it's good news to us that he is the one who is merciful, that he can redeem those that we would write off as irredeemable, including ourselves. And then if we're in Christ and we've received the mercy of God by this power of the Spirit, by God's grace, as we grow in our sanctification, God continues to shake us out of our sin. And that's not unto judgment if you're in Christ. Though you may feel guilty of unrepented sin, you can come boldly before the throne of grace, that you may put off your sin and by God's grace put on Christ and be made in his image. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And while, yes, that can sting and it can burn, it is for our good. Because it is the most loving thing for our Father to do. If sin's wages are really death, then the most loving thing for him to do is to pull us out of that, to bring us into his presence. So for him to discipline those whom he loves is a very loving thing to do indeed. And then Christ, in his image, we are being fashioned. He is our king. And this is a reminder just throughout the whole book of Daniel that we have a great king and that he is the only true king, and that his rule is certain, and no matter what happens in this country and in this, in this uh, kingdom of man, Christ's reign will not fail, and he will be faithful to his people. Our economy could just bottom out, and yet the most, treasure, uh, the most valuable treasure of all, the Lord's mercy, will be new morning after morning. The gas tanks can run out again, but his grace will not. And our military could fail, or the Supreme Court and the laws of the land could turn against us and we could find our liberty squashed and squeezed out of us. And yet we're still free in Christ. We're free to worship because we are in the kingdom of the only true God, the only kingdom that will last. And our great King Christ, he will come back. But for now, he delays, he tarries. Because when he returns, he will make all things new. Uh, and yet at the same time, he'll be just. And his enemies will be made his footstool. Those who cling to their arrogance and their empty idols will be cast down. Tarries, but if, even if that's you this morning, tarries that that might not be you, that, that he might continue to grind away at your pride and bring you from being a sinner and turn you into a son or a daughter as part of his kingdom. But he will come, that every knee may bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord forever and ever. And so as we close out then, let's turn to him in prayer and just give thanks that our God is patient, that he is just, and that he is merciful in his work of redemption and recreation. Oh, Father, we come to you, Lord, and we, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that it's a beautiful day and that you just have, uh, Lord, as this text tells us, you have given our, our lungs the very breath and the air that we breathe now. And all our ways, Lord, are in your hands. And we thank you just for the graciousness of life that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to have your word, Lord, just before us. We thank you for your spirit which guides us. And, Lord, we pray that you would humble us in our arrogance because we all fight it, Lord. It's the root of all of our idolatry. 
We ask, oh Lord, that we would be made weak, that your power may be displayed uh, both for us and for the, the, the redemption of the world, Lord, may be displayed in our weakness, may be shown to be perfect, Lord. Would you be with us in these uncertain times, Lord? Turn our eyes from the things of men and from the prizes and praises of this world, that we may know the words that you have spoken over us in Christ, Lord, that we may know the rewards of heaven and being in union with Christ and in your presence forever. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you shook us out of our sins, Lord, that you sent Christ to die and to endure the judgment that fell on Belshazzar and that should fall on us. We thank you that in Christ we need not experience that, but instead can be in your presence and worship you. And so as we uh, finish out with our worship this morning, Lord, would you move us? Would you move us by your gospel, not just emotionally, Lord, not just rationally, but move us to trust in you, Lord, in faith. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our, our Lord, our Savior, and our great King. Amen.